into being. Its purpose is enlightenment. Its product is coast boys. Welcome back to the Best Coast Boys podcast. I am your host, Landon McCool. You can find me on Twitter at McCoolBCB and on the Locked On Cowboys podcast with Marcus Moser. Please go check us out. Uh, John is out today, but I am joined by a very special guest, a guy I've been trying to get on the show for a while. Uh, he is really caught my eye on Twitter. His, his Twitter handle is uh, at Cowboys Stats. Um, Daniel Houston. Uh, Daniel, how you doing? And please tell everyone, um, you know what 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 you like to do with analytics specifically, and and kind of why I brought you here. Oh, sure. Well, first of all, oh, sell yourself, Daniel. Sell yourself to these. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Thank, thanks so much for having me, Landon. Uh, appreciate the opportunity. Um, yeah, I uh, you know for those who aren't familiar, kind of with what I do, I, I kind of run a uh, uh, an account on Twitter. Uh, I do a little bit of freelance work as well for for WFAA, where I kind of write about the Cowboys and uh, have been a big Cowboys fan for a long time and uh, have always had an interest in uh, kind of what the advanced analytics community has to say about the game of football and also how that applies to the Cowboys. And, you know, about about a year ago, um, you know, I had been writing for WFAA for a little while, um, but about a year ago, I had discovered this uh, incredible, relatively new uh, resource to obtain uh, and a large amount of NFL data. It's called NFL Scraper. And then uh, one of the benefits of this database is that it also gives you access to um, expected points models, where you can run every single play through something called an expected points model. Um, this is something that I had kind of read about for uh, several years. Uh, a guy named Brian Burke at ESPN, mm-hmm. um, you know, he had uh, done a lot of work uh, on this front that uh, had informs things from the New York Times fourth down bot um, to uh, a number of conclusions about you know the run and the pass on early down stuff that we're probably going to talk about today. Um, and anyway, I was just fascinated by this this angle of looking at football. And as soon as I found a, a resource <laughs> that I could actually work with the data myself, I uh, was I was just in on it. You know, I <laughs> I had to learn a little bit of coding. And then once yeah. I once I kind of learned uh, the base basic technical skills um, well enough to use this data, um, I wanted to share it. So that's kind of why I started this Cowboys Stats uh, account. And um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of been it's been a fun a fun ride. Uh, very uh, very interesting uh, engagement. Um, it's fun. It's fun to watch you interact on Twitter. And we talked about this before that you know. You you operate on on a stats based you know f- as much as you can facts based uh, account and, and 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 a lot of people don't like that <laughs> a lot of people a lot of people want to hold on to their beliefs as opposed to facts and and you know <clears throat> I think that there's arguments to be made and, and I feel like I've had arguments before with analytic people about application you know but not but not so much you know where. <laughs> What what the numbers are saying, or what or what what these stats mean? I, I think it's funny just to watch people have their reactions 
to your information directly related to what their you know previous narratives were whether it's you know whether people should pay DAC or whether you know running backs matter it's it's just funny to see people how they react to you yeah and well the thing is the reason they're reacting this way i mean it's everyone has their own like prior assumptions about the game of football especially if you're a big fan and you've followed it for years um i certainly had mine and still have yeah. mine um it's it's funny i actually you know might surprise some people to hear this especially if they're familiar with my account but i wrote an article a couple years ago um where i was basically uh using um kind of spurious uh, uh techniques to to conclude that actually perhaps zeke was uh, a more important uh, figure for the cowboys than dak was in 2016 um, hmm. what I did here wow. was not a crazy idea. It was to basically look at all of the drives. I, I individually charted every drive where, uh, Zeke was out of the game, uh, cause they brought him out of the game, like sometime in the second quarter, almost every game. Um, yeah. so I was just looking at those drives where Zeke was not the primary ball carrier. And I compared the passing performance on those drives to, uh, the passing performance on, on all the others where Zeke was a part of the game. And there was a big difference, you know, and so I wrote a whole article on, on that basis. Um, and I was basically confirming a, a prior assumption I had and in interpreting mm. this very small sample of a very small number of drives through my base assumption that, you know, a rookie quarterback uh, was having a lot of success and it didn't quite make sense. And perhaps here was an explanation. Um, I now think that. I was wrong, or if I, you know, even if I was right, I was right for the wrong reasons, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, totally. But that's just one example of like, I mean, you know, I have a lot of interactions on Twitter where I think people uh, are reacting kind of the same way, where they have that initial assumption and they see something that doesn't line up with it. And even if it's based in hard facts and data, um, you know, there's, there is room for interpretation and differences. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny kind of when you do just throw out a basic, uh, you know, a basic fact and then people uh, get mad about it online. That's, it's always kind of fun to watch. So real quick, I mean, uh, we, we talked about this a little bit, but I have an, a background in IT. I mean, that's my day job essentially. So I deal with database technology. And, and so I had, when you started talking about NFL scraper, I, I obviously had a, a a little bit of experience in that kind of technology and sort of uh you know database interfacing that can help extract information you know and and i i think that it's important to kind of help explain wh why there's this been ex this explosion for uh all these accounts and 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 what the nfl scraper has allowed people to do with all the play-by-play -play information that is was kind of not previously available. Oh, sure. Um, gosh. So before NFL Scraper, um, the best resource for people who wanted to work with uh, NFL stats was almost certainly Pro Football Reference, which is still yeah. a fantastic resource. And for most people, if you have a question about a particular uh, situational stat, if you want to run a query um, to compare players, that's a fantastic place to go. Um, what it's not great for, at least in my experience, is actually working with all of the data yourself yeah. and, and really analyzing situational 
um, play calling and, and things of that nature over a huge sample. We're talking hundreds of thousands of plays over the last decade, right? So NFL scraper, what it did for the analytics community was incredible. Shout out to Ron Yorko and Sam Mm -hmm. Ventura and the team, um, that put this together. Basically NFL scraper is not a database. NFL Scraper is a series of tools and code (laughs) that allows you to scrape the NFL play-by-play from the NFL's official website, and then it runs all of this information for every single play through a uh, fairly, it it sounds complex, but it's really a relatively simple uh, expected points model that tries to value uh, the value of each down and distance at each part of the field. and. This is by far the most accessible that expected points models have ever mm-hmm. been. Uh, NFL Scraper is the whole reason I like learned part of a programming language, right? I would never have done that, except I had this fascination with EPA for years. Um, it had never been really accessible. NFL Scraper made expected points and expected points added a very accessible statistic for people who really wanted to find it. Um, beyond expected points models, NFL Scraper is fantastic just for looking, I mean, just looking at anything you would like to look at, your your yards per play, it has air yards. You can look at, you know, average depth of target in certain situations. You can look at completion percentage uh, adjusted for depth of target. Some in, some incredible uh, things that you can do with NFL Scraper. And it's, you know, uh, I can't speak highly enough of it as a resource. Um, but yeah, it's allowed for a lot of accounts to kind of pop up. Um, on Twitter and elsewhere, where they're just doing incredible work that hasn't been done before, at least not publicly, and certainly not for free on a, a, a medium like Twitter. So it's it's been an incredible step forward, I think, for the analytics community in football. So we we've we've heard you talk about expected points, EPA, as as the terminology goes. Obviously, before we go any further and, and start talking about any of these analytics and how they apply to the team that we love, we need to do a little bit of introduction of term for people that, that are not completely familiar with it. So give us the the brief explainer of what EPA is. Sure. So EPA is kind of trying to add context to yardage because we all know that a two-yard gain on third and one is a great play. Um, but a two-yard gain on third and eight is a pretty useless play, right? Um, yeah. So the context behind the yardage is largely tied to the down and distance of each play and the the part of the field that you're on. Um, and those are the main factors that go into what we call expected points models, down, distance, field position. So basically, um, this... Uh, there's different expected points models that have slightly different methodologies. I use NFL Scraper just because it's the most accessible one. But um, generally, they all do roughly the same thing. Um, they look at historical scoring expectancies um, from every down distance and field position on the field. So how often did a team actually score a touchdown from this field position? How often did a team actually score a field goal? And then how often did the opponent score a touchdown? How often did the opponent score a field goal? Um, And it basically averages all of these outcomes together to give you a value of that particular part of the field at that down and distance. And then the statistic expected points added, which is usually what I use uh, on Twitter, 
expected points added is just the change in that value from the beginning of the play to the end of the play. So if you improve your chances of scoring based on these historic scoring expectancies, that's considered a positive EPA play. Um, it's considered a successful play by some definitions. Um, and the nice thing about using this is it also gives you a pretty, I think, valid uh, idea of how harmful certain plays are like turnovers. Turnovers are incredibly harmful, according to EPA. Uh, explosive plays are incredibly helpful. They increase your expected scoring uh, margin by uh, much more than a, a short gain might. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of a way of taking the result of a play and putting it in context of the down and distance based on historically how often teams have scored. I have, you know, and this is now me commenting on it and not being the the person introducing the topic. <laughs> uh, I I have a compl complicated relationship with EPA because, uh, first of all, uh, context is my brand. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think, to me, most of our conversations that we have on Twitter, most of the debate that is had on, you know, talk radio or or you know espn or whatever uh, i i feel like sorely lack amount a, a, an amount of context that really would eliminate a lot of these debates you know, and i think so adding expected points into the conversation i think is good because anytime you can add context to it's one of the reasons that i'm not a huge fantasy football fan because it, it it kind of removes all context of the game when you're doing it, it, it or at least it it changes what the context is. Oh yeah, and and so this to me in a lot of ways is much you know it, it's an improvement on stats because um because it, it it injects context into the situation. Um, that's why I like expected points. One of the issues I have against, or I have at times, I guess with depending on how it's used and, and you know, we will talk about this different points is, is <clears throat> it injects down and distance, which I think is important. Uh, it injects points, but I, I think one of the things that it, it, I've always wondered, and, and this is kind of half a question and, and half a concern. It's something really I'm, I'm trying to get you to kind of maybe soothe me on um, is I feel like intent is not always contextualized in EPA. And, and I guess what I mean is, you know, for teams like Dallas, where they're playing complementary football, and, and, I, and we're going to get into the whole uh, discussion of, of uh, you know, when is good to run and run versus pass and, you know, running at, at, at earlier downs and, and the value of run tied to the pass game. We're going to have a great discussion about that. Uh, but I, I think the one part where I struggle with with EPA is when there is a complementary football aspect aspect that's happening in the game plan, and so because of that, that is like that intent is reflected in the play calling, but not always measured in EPA because EPA is you know measuring the play based on how that play will get you points. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, like, it, it makes a lot. Of I, sense. And this is this is a conversation that I've been I've wanted to bring you in to, to have because 
explaining that on Twitter would make me sound like a mad, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like it's hard to have that conversation, but that's one thing about EPA that like, as someone who likes analytics and, and, and enjoys using the tools in specific situations where I struggle is when we are adding context to things, but I feel like we're not adding full context. So how do I guess make me feel better about that? Or do you agree that that is something that is maybe missing in the formula of EPA? Oh, I, I'm going to absolutely agree that it's missing. Okay. So oh, great. let's, let's start. <laughs> okay, good. I'm not crazy. Yeah, no, good. you're not crazy. Uh, let's okay, start good. from the point that EPA is pretty much just trying to quantify outcomes, right? It doesn't tell yeah. us about intent. It doesn't tell us about, yeah, what are you trying to set up this play later on? You know, are you uh, like, like, let's, let's assume that, you know, it, that when you establish the run early in the game, it makes uh, the play action pass more effective later in the game. Just looking at EPA values on individual plays tells you nothing about whether that's working or whether that's the intent. But what it tells you is whether the play worked, right? So that's very useful. Um, and it's very, it, and, and like I said earlier, it's laden with so much more context than traditional yardage totals are. Um, yeah because of the down and distance component. Um, so yeah, I, I would actually strongly agree with that, um, that notion that EPA is incomplete and it doesn't tell us everything we need to know. And it certainly doesn't tell us anything about intent. Um, but I do think that using certain data analysis techniques, we can test some hypotheses about football, about the relationships between variables, and about perhaps whether you know, running the ball more frequently or more effectively early in the game sets up play action so that play action is more effective later in the game, for instance. Those are questions I think we can answer, but it's more through an indirect form of data analysis, comparing the relationships between variables, not so much through looking at raw EPA totals on specific plays. Um, So yeah, I think EPA is just a tool and I think it's a way better contextual tool than almost anything else available. We're just valuing what happened on the play and whether it helped the team uh, have a better chance of scoring and winning. Analytics has taught me that, you know, things that are powerful are dangerous. <laughs> and 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 I I mean I mean I guess it didn't teach me that, but I didn't really hadn't really learned that about sports information. And and it, but I feel like it's true. I mean, the, I think that the problem is half the time I feel like people are in your feed because they don't really understand what they're arguing about. You know what I'm saying? Like they they've read something that you've put, and you're just you know putting out the numbers with with the acronyms out there and stating fact factually, and they misread what that means and get upset and kind of reflexively, you know respond and well that's being very that's being very kind to me because you could also be pointing out how hyperbolic i get sometimes because that's just fun on twitter um <laughs> well that's that, that's yeah well, I mean, that's also part of it is yeah. it? i mean look we're all just we're all just creating conversations and, and so uh, i mean but at the same time like i i, I think the, the part that that holds us back is that you're having uh, sometimes you're having a nuanced conversation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're having a good time, and we're all laughing and we're we're being comedic. Uh, but but it's like you know, people uh, people reflexively kind of like getting angry about what they're reading without understanding yeah. it. 
that that needs that needs to change first. So and that's part of what I wanted to talk to you about, so we can get into this and, and kind of help because this might be a little bit better of a medium for helping explain something. Oh, for sure. So, yeah. I mean, Twitter's. Yeah. I mean, it can be good if people are approaching it in bad faith or in good faith, rather. But uh, yeah, you yeah. know, it's otherwise a terrible place to discuss ideas. But you know, uh, it's a lot of fun, and I do think a lot yeah, of exactly. good conversation does happen on Twitter. If I didn't oh, feel absolutely. that way, I wouldn't be spending as much time there, you know. <laughs> as much more, more time than we all. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> let's let's get into it. So we got several different headings of kind of topics that we wanted to talk about, um, and so we'll go through each and and just kind of uh, make our way through this list, and and through that, you know, we'll serve that as a, a means to talk about the Cowboys specifically. So. Um, the first one we wanted to discuss was using EPA to kind of quantify defensive playmaking. And you included a link here and we'll, we'll uh, include it hopefully in, in the, uh, in the description for the podcast as well, uh, which has a list, you know, kind of a graph. And why don't you actually explain you know, what's on the graph and, and how, uh, with the X and Y of, the, of being snap count versus EPA. Sure. So, yeah, let, let me back up just a little bit because um, Please. playmaking EPA, this is a, a stat that I sort of named, but I didn't invent. Okay, so there was a, um, going back to Brian Burke, I mentioned Brian Burke earlier, who did a lot of work with expected points models. He had a statistic when he ran his own website, advancedfootballanalytics.com. Um, now Brian Burke is at ESPN, uh, working with their analytics department. Um, but at the time, he was doing a lot of this work. He had this stat called, I think it was uh, plus EPA. Um, and the idea behind it was um, trying to quantify defensive playmaking um, using uh, basically all plays that ended in a bad result for the offense. Who caused that play or who made the tackle, who uh, deflected the pass, intercepted the pass? It's taking all our traditional defensive individual statistics and assigning a value to that tackle, assigning a value to that batted pass based on EPA. Um, and so when I started working with NFL Scraper, I thought, I want to do that. You know, I, I really want yeah. to be able to make yeah. these leaderboards um, and, and see who the most disruptive players are in the NFL today. Um, so, you know, I didn't think that plus EPA was the most explanatory name. So I kind of went with something slightly different and is a slightly differently calculated stat, but very similar in methodology. Um, but definitely the credit for the stat goes to Brian Burke. I just sort of resurrected it in the public domain. Um, the idea behind playmaking EPA is not to measure everything that a defender does. It's actually really bad at measuring coverage skills, for instance. Mm, um, interesting. It's just, it just doesn't, it's not good for it. But yeah. What it's good for is like giving us an idea of who's making, you know, the splashiest plays. Um, it's funny, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with and a lot of your listeners are familiar with Bob Sturm's splash plays. Of course. Yeah, I was going to bring him up. Yeah. So this this statistic is kind of like if you had splash plays, but then you widened the net and tried and, and were able to include a number of additional smaller plays that made a difference in the outcome. Um, a tackle for a two yard gain on first down that made the offense less likely to, to convert. Um, just little things like that. And then it weights all of these events by their impact. So a turnover is a huge play. 
whereas uh, that two-yard tackle is a relatively small one. Um, it's, you know, it's basically an effort to try to get at a measure of total disruption on plays that failed for the offense. Um, it's, it's really interesting because it seems to me, just like, you know, as an outsider, it seems to fa- easily, when, when applied, seems to find the kind of big plays that are hidden in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the ones that where, um, you know, okay, he didn't get a turnover here, but because it was third down and he made a tackle, you know, to, you know short of the, that, all those kind of plays that usually traditionally you would have to go through and watch all the tape in order to you know, just count that as a big play. Mm-hmm. Now this seems to collect those uh, along with uh, the more obvious fumble recovery, forced fumble, you know, sack, tackle for loss, all those. Yeah, playmaking EPA loves that third down stop, the fourth down stop yeah. on, on yeah. just a normal running play, something that would just count as a tackle. I mean, it, you yeah. get a big expected points flip um, from those types of plays. It's partly why Jalen Smith... I was going to say. <laughs> this guy is, is so disruptive. Um, yeah. and he's asked to do different things. I know than, than Leighton Vanderesh is, you know, mm. and it's not really useful to compare the two because of the differences in assignments and styles, but, you know, it might surprise some people to hear that, you know, in terms of just sheer, uh, playmaking disruption, Jalen Smith was the more disruptive player, um, in 2018 than, than Vanderesh was, um, on a per play basis and overall. And Demarcus Lawrence as well is another great example of a guy who people probably don't even realize, even Cowboys fans, how many huge third and fourth down stops that ended drives were caused by Demarcus Lawrence on plays that weren't even sacks. You know, um, that's the kind of thing playmaking EPA captures. And I'm fascinated by it. It's not like a perfect stat. It's at best half the picture of defensive yeah. of, of the defense because it doesn't include any positive play any good plays for the the offense you know it's yeah. only the negative plays for the offense and who caused that uh which individual de- defensive player was directly involved in that outcome but i think it's a huge upgrade just for me personally i would much rather look at uh the playmaking epa and start from that point uh to figure out the big plays and the big playmakers I would much rather do that than just look at a list of the tackling leaders, you know? Um, so th- yeah, I think it's, it's useful for a lot of things and I'm still trying to figure out, uh, I need to test it at some point and see how predictive it is. Cause it's kind of intensive to, to test these things sometimes for me at least. And, um, uh, but descriptively just explaining what happened in a game on defense and who was involved in that yeah. play. I, I, I think it's one of the best things that's out there right now in the public domain. It's you know it, it's it's about defensive creators mm-hmm. you know it's it's it, you're finding the guys who are you know when when your team needs the, the guys who are consistently doing it it's it, it's not surprising and and I but what is surprising is kind of seeing them in relation to each mm-hmm. other like like for instance one of the things that this link does is that you can do you know your team but then on top of that you can do multiple teams and you can do it by position. And uh, I just happened, I don't know how my fingers did this, but I just happened to type in Dallas and Philly's defense Mm -hmm. on top of each other. And looking at how far above in playmaking EPA, Demarcus Lawrence and Jalen Smith are to, say, Fletcher Cox or even Michael Bennett from last season uh, is shocking, Mm -hmm. you know, and and it kind of gives you an idea of, 
you know, because we're we're in our own bubble to a certain degree, but it gives you an idea of like how in relation to the rest of the league, at least by name, how good Demarcus Lawrence is at, at creating plays big and small uh, as a defender and Jalen Smith, obviously, as well. I mean, Jalen Smith is shocking just because the number of snaps he's he's playing I mean, well over 900 snaps, mm-hmm. but his EPA is, you know, is almost I mean, I, I can't quite get that, but I'm assuming it's at 70. And so that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, to to put that in context for probably some of the the listeners, I mean, there's there's like ten players in the NFL maybe that you know had a higher uh, a disruptive impact on defense as measured by playmaking playmaking EPA than Jalen Smith did in the whole league. Wow. Maybe ten players. Um, there's this dot, this hilarious dot at the top of the chart. Um, yeah, that's Aaron Donald. In case you were wondering, uh, I, was, I assumed as much. So, I wasn't sure if that was a, a, a problem with my screen. Or no, but. that's yeah, <laughs> that smudge on your screen is Aaron Donald, yeah. uh, the alien uh, defensive tackle. Yeah. Um, Demarcus Lawrence is actually the highest um, uh, of any edge defender in the NFL. He had the highest uh, playmaking EPA total for the season, despite having fewer snaps than a number of other edge defenders. Um, yeah. It, and Lawrence was driven. I mean, he had good pass rush uh, uh, impact, but Lawrence, I mean, just wrecked opposing offenses on on critical high leverage downs over and over all season long. I mean, I don't know how re- replicable that is going forward, um, but it was amazing and, and very helpful for the Cowboys, I think, as they uh, were were winning games in uh, the 2018 season yeah absolutely um uh, just along these lines before we move on were there any other surprises or or what 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 else did you kind of just take away overall from from this that i mean once you were finished and you got to actually look at the numbers uh, you know what 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 surprised you the most in kind of looking I guess league wide at, at all these defensive play playmakers and and how things were grouped. Um, one early surprise was just a pleasant one, which that I I looked at the leaderboards and discovered that a lot of the players that we think of as really really good <laughs> were at the top because what you don't good. what you don't want is a stat that just measures volume and yeah. you know you want something that's going to measure uh, some something real something that's descriptive and, and gives you an idea of how this player is helping uh, his team to, to win. So I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, not surprised perhaps, but I was definitely happy to see that. And just generally, I mean, um, names pop out. Uh, you know, Cowboys fans are not going to be happy to hear this. Uh, TJ Watt is a... Incredibly good play by playmaking EPA. Um, I'm not one of the people who you know points fingers and says, "Oh, this was such an obvious decision uh, in the draft" or anything. But it's definitely the case that you know Charlton is, has not been what TJ Watt has been. Although, oh, he hasn't. EPA points that out. Yeah, Taco Charlton <laughs> has not been a playmaking slouch. You know, I mean, uh, no, I mean, a per snap basis, I bet that it's actually not yeah, bad. I mean, he got above average on a per snap basis for sure for Taco Charlton, which, you know, that's not nothing. Um, no. But uh, yeah, you know, it's there's lots of little things like that. I, I don't even know how to get into all of them. But uh, the, 
Yeah, biggest surprise though. I mean, Aaron Donald is no one's close to him. Mm. No edge rusher is close to his playmaking impact. Um, and I mean, he's he's got over a hundred uh, expected points added on failed plays for the opposing offense that he was directly involved in. And there's only one other player in the league that had more than seventy five. That's wow. how crazy Donald's season was. Um, that second player, that second highest player was Darius Leonard, I think, linebacker for the Colts, rookie, mm-hmm. um, who, was he snubbed for the All-Pro team? I forget if he made it or not. But, yeah, I think he was, actually. Um, I mean, if I remember correctly, because wasn't he complaining about it? I feel like he, he was. He might have been snubbed for Pro Bowl and made All-Pro or something like that. But Something like that. That's probably more likely, yeah, honestly. Uh, Darius Leonard was i mean just insane like in a way that i didn't yeah. hear anyone talking about um during the season i mean i heard you hear colts fans talk about how good he was but on a national level i was i was like who's this guy and he was on the top of the leaderboards every single week um just Whoa. making tons of plays and we're not just talking tackles that are really good but i mean he was forcing a ton of turnovers and the interesting thing about playmaking epa is once again it's it's heavily influenced by turnovers you create because there's big plays um, but there's also has to be some degree of regularity with which you're, you know, making, uh, stops and making tackles. And so I like that it's kind of stabilized by that, but I don't know yet how much we can draw conclusions about a player's future performance based on his past performance by playmaking EPA. So I wouldn't say like that you would always want to just pay someone necessarily. Yeah. yeah. You don't want, just yeah. want to necessarily say, I'm going to give a, however, long of a contract to a player that had good playmaking EPA, you would want to test this a little bit more from the perspective of how replicable are these results for individual players? Well, I mean, you have to think it's probably pretty replicable, replicable. If you're looking at the list and through on a full season basis, they're, you know, they're, they're passing the eyeball test. Yep. I mean, I, I'm obviously you, it's promising is I guess what I'm getting at. You just need more data. Yeah, I'm definitely going to keep my eye on this because this, <clears throat> I, I, like I said, I think this has been a difficult. This is one of the, those areas that analytics has really helped kind of illuminate. As where, you know, we we know that the NFL has, I guess, volatile players, players that you know that can create big plays on the defensive side. But I, I think what's hard to find are the kind of players who can consistently disrupt. Uh, and I think that this might be a, a, a key to kind of help, you know, help kind of identify those guys without having to go through every single snap of every single play. Uh, 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 people that are consistently producing game-changing plays mm-hmm. regularly. I mean, it, it, that's that's what the you know you hope this eventually can suss itself out to be. Yeah. So, um, all right. Next next heading. Um, this has been. <laughs> Something that I think I think has been discussed on Twitter. I don't know. Um, what is the relationship between a strong running game and the passing game, if there is one? Uh, and I, I kind of intentionally phrased this maybe a little bit uh, uh, open-ended because, I mean, I, I think that we're going to have kind of several different conversations here. But I, I feel like this is a spot where the conversation surrounding this has kind of got off the, uh, off the rails. Like to me, the question has never been, does the run game have an effect on the pass game? It's specifically the play action pass game. It, instead, the question is, is the effect on the pass game valuable enough 
then it's worth establishing the run, quote unquote, to set up the play action pass versus just throwing the ball in early downs. So uh, let's have, we're going to have all the little miniature conversations involved in all of that, including, you know, passing versus running on early downs and the relationship between um, the run game and the pass game. So I, I think let's start there. In your studies and what you've seen so far, what what is if there is any kind of the relation between the having a good running game and the pass game, obviously, but also specifically the play action pass? Yeah. So let let's just start with you know two simple concepts of rush efficiency and pass efficiency, right? Let's just talk per play um, mm-hmm. to start with. So the there is a you know there is a relationship uh that exists uh between uh you know teams that run the ball well they're a bit more likely to pass the ball well over the course of an entire team season um this probably isn't surprising for most people to hear it's it's pretty well uh uh within the mainstream uh view of of how football works and it makes logical sense um what what interested me is that when I crunched the numbers for roughly the last like 10 uh, seasons um, and took every single team season in that time span, um, what we saw is that uh, your, whether you're looking at it in terms of yards per play or EPA per play um, or success rate, uh, you're basically seeing a 10 to 12% uh, relationship where um, uh, the the extent to which you're able to run the ball well explains 12% of the variance in how well you pass the ball over the course of an entire season. Um, that's not a huge relationship, but it's also not nothing in football. Like the relationships between variables in football, because it's such a complex game with so much variance, that's a mm-hmm. uh, that's not nothing. Um, so here's the thing that has me scratching my head, because the traditional explanation for why the run and the pass are linked is that the better you run the ball in a game, the more likely a defense is going to adjust, sell out to the run, and then you're going to be able to pass against them, right? That's kind of the narrative of how that relationship works. When you look, when you, when you drill down, instead of looking at team seasons, and you look at individual games, every single individual game that's been played in the NFL over the past decade or so, what you find is actually no relationship whatsoever between how well a team runs in terms of yards per play, EPA per play, and how well they pass. Which is fascinating to me, that there is a a noticeable, fairly strong relationship at the team season level. And yet, on the individual game level, that relationship disappears. Um, I don't know what to make of it, to be honest with you. I'm still trying well, to wrap my let, head around Let's it. talk about it, because I, I think this is... I actually don't think that that's surprising, because I, I think the numbers... I, I think the numbers... Sh- it's weird to me, but... It, it, as, you know, as, I actually played high, linebacker in high school, and that that doesn't, I don't think, apply to any, uh, any conversation <laughs> most of the time when you're talking football. And let me be clear about that. But I think in this instance, we, I can at least say that in the psychology of what you're talking about for like a person who has responsibilities in both the pass and the run game, like ultimately what you're trying to do with the play action pass is 
manipulate you know second and third level defenders into taking a false step and allowing your guys to get an extra step by fooling them into thinking that it's a run play, mm-hmm. right? Like, there's no point. There's at no point in the history of the NFL, in the most in the history of college football too, really, that there's been a team that has thrown the ball so exclusively that it would not make a linebacker not to completely ignore their run responsibility. Mm-hmm. I think there was, a, I heard an interesting uh, conversation uh, from the guys. God, I'm, I should remember their names because I'm referencing their podcast. I, the sports in, in information uh, guys, God, I can't remember their podcast is. I'm, I'm terrible, but they're the football outsider. Both. It's part of the football outsider. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about you know, having the, the great debate about, you know, the relationship of foot of, uh, of of running versus pass and, and you know running and play action pass and, and and they brought up the point that like the conversation has gone from running can't affect you know play the running has a, a little effect on play action pass or not the same effect that we all perceived it to have to running has no effect and and the, and the truth is that there's no way to test that theory because no one is not you know, there may be some teams out there that are getting close to not throwing the ball, but no one is not running the ball. Right. You know what I'm saying? Everyone runs the football yeah. on at some percentage. And until some team completely gets rid of running the football, the run responsibilities of these the, the run responsibilities of these defenders, the reaction part of these defenders is always going to be influence influence in the moment no matter what's happening by their run first responsibilities. I think that all of this can be explained by the fact that coaches coach their defensive players to react to run first and then drop into, into. I I think there's a lot of evidence that supports that. Um, A lot of evidence that supports that. I mean, you can just look at situational uh, results. Um, So we can get, we're going to get into this more later, but, you know, on early downs, generally speaking, teams get a lot better results when they're passing the ball than when they're running the ball. Um, mm-hmm. But on third down, even sometimes like third and long or third and mid range, there are situations where running gets you a better result than the pass. And it, you know, it's expectation, right? Yeah, it's it's, it's like it, there, some there is some and, evidence, and it's not entirely certain that you know what the the new equilibrium would look like, but I. I do think that there is um, there's definitely evidence to support the idea that defensive coaches in the NFL are instructing their players to defend the run first, particularly on first down and certain other situations, and that this is the reason why linebackers continually bite on play action passes, even though play action passes are much more dangerous than any individual run could reasonably be expected to be before the play. Um, it's it's really interesting because the defense is basically choosing what you would think would be a suboptimal strategy for some of these early downs, and yet the offense is running into it anyway a significant share of the time. So it's working. The defense is winning yeah. that exchange in this environment and this equilibrium. And you alluded earlier, I think, to uh, what it, what would happen if uh, someone actually tried to uh, increase their passing rates. Um, 
Cliff Kingsbury, please, I implore you, well, yeah, give, us gonna, more we data. give us more data. Give us more data. Show us. It's going to give us so, so much better control, you know, because now you actually have a limit, an extreme to one end to kind of run all these tests against to see if, you know, what the success is. And unfortunately, it's just one team at, at this point. But but if he ha- if he has even an emoticon of, of success, suddenly you're going to have other teams coming in throwing at, uh, you know, 75, eight, I don't know, 80 percent, maybe more yeah. like and, and and that'll be an interesting showing of of what you get. And, and that's the other problem is that I think it, it kind of. This is my other issue, I guess, in general, with some kind of uh, conclusions that come up to with analytics in general is that it's the idea that that there isn't there isn't a reaction to their action you know like like when people i think there's sometimes that the people like think that oh well this is a conclusion i'm drawing from this data and that means that the solution to this conclusion is x but what they're not accounting for is that teams will just do why that is, you know what I'm saying? Like that it'll, it'll instantly flip the equation back. And suddenly we're still chasing that dragon of what the future of football is. Now we're just doing it with analytics as with, with, you know, in, involved in, you understand what I'm yeah. saying here? It's like, you know, we can, at, at what point does the market efficiency flip on the passing versus run game? Because everyone's got 260 pound defensive tackles <laughs> trying to rush the, you know, and suddenly you've got a 220 pound running back and yeah, guess what? It's probably extremely efficient now to run a, a, a HB gut up the middle because you're not turning the ball over and good luck having anyone that's in the defensive backfield tackling this guy. So yeah, I think that that's, I don't know. I've kind of got off on a tangent there, but I, I think this is, the only problem I have predictive is that as soon as predictive parts of, of, of this thing is that it's, it, it's great for telling us it's great for explaining what happened and, and like, and, and kind of, and again, putting context on what happened, but there are times I, I, I think the predictive parts of EPA and, and, and this and, and is better in small specific areas, you know, like, and not so much uh, in, in larger areas because of that. Because that there is, uh, as soon as as soon as someone starts chasing that dragon, someone else will come in and flip it, and then you know we're we're off to the race. Bill Belichick will figure out that you guys are all idiots <laughs> and that we're good. We're doing this now. No, we're all doing the four three defense, and you know it's it's you know it's and and, and suddenly that, that's what we're doing again. I, I don't know. I guess does any of that make sense, or did I just go off? It does. It does make sense. It's what's happened. We've seen in other sports, right? The early adopters of some of the uh, the analytic conclusions about inefficiencies in a game, the early adopters of those uh, conclusions uh, gain an edge for a while, and then what happens? The league responds. Now everyone wants to do those things. Um, yeah. The uh, you know, I mean, just think about kind of what's happened in basketball as more and more teams yeah. have abandoned the mid range jumper. Why? Because it's it's mm-hmm. a bad play. It's a low percentage shot that uh, comes with lower payoff. Than if you were standing, you know, a foot further so you back, get the same points as you do if you dunk the ball. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. it's like that. That's one example in basketball where, yeah, the the early adopters, the Rockets, for instance, um, they they kind of they figured out before everyone else, hey, the mid range jumper is not helping us. It's actually pretty bad, and just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean you know that that we should be. And now more and more teams um, are adopting 
you know, strategies uh, that kind of lower the the role of the mid-range jumper in their offense. Um, in football, I think you kind of see something similar going on here. And maybe this is a good segue into the con- conversation on uh, early down play calling. But mm-hmm. there's this interesting just fact that the results that teams are getting in the NFL, every single NFL team in the league is getting better results on passes on early downs, um, including mm-hmm. the teams like the Steelers, who are already passing nearly 70% of the time in those early down situations. Um, so there's no element of surprise that they're passing on first down is what, you, is what you're getting at it, but they're still getting high EPA value with passing on first downs, even when it's expected. Right. So they are able to, and I, let, let's assume that part of the reason for why a pass is successful is because the opposing defense thinks that it might be a run. Okay. Let's assume that's true, which yeah. I think is probably true. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. If that's true, then the Steelers were able to maintain a credible threat to run before each play while, while throwing the ball 70% of the time, which tells me at least, this is my guess, my conclusion, they could have passed more, you know, and still maintain a credible threat to run, even without Levy and Bell in the backfield. Um, you know, they were able to maintain this, this concept of a credible threat to run and pass fairly successfully in those situations, certainly more successfully than they were running. So real quick, you know, kind of putting the knowledge that we've gained just in this podcast <laughs> together, I mean, is there a bottom to like the, the threat of the run credible threat to run? Does that ever, uh, does that ever disappear? We don't know. Like how, how could we possibly know? Because the NFL See, teams are not, that, they're, they're not at the optimal level. Like they're not at I a rate where passes and rushes are giving you equal payoff. But in theory, you could reach an equilibrium point at like 85% passing on that, in that situation. So you passed 85% of the time, maybe then you would be getting roughly equal results. But what we know is that even the teams that are passing 70% of the time are getting better results on passing plays. And it's not really even close, frankly. It's every single team in the NFL. And it's, it's just this huge opportunity, I think, for, for some teams to come in in this environment while defenses are still playing the run this way on early downs and to gain an edge. I think it's a big opportunity for those reasons, but I have no way of knowing and no one has any way of knowing uh, what the optimal ratio is in this environment or what the ratio would be after defense. Because we haven't reached the wall yet. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because I I, I do think that, I do think that, you know, because of what we talked about, because of the way that they're coached, you know, for, for them to coach, to, to actually coach against that, to try to coach that out of them. Um, even for like, I mean, because that's the other thing too, is that you have to think when you're coaching that, like that's, that's an install thing. That's not like a game planning for a specific team thing until you're playing that team that week, you know? And so that's, that becomes a difficult thing because even if you take the time to coach that out of your guys for that week, I mean, that's that's a really difficult thing to kind of go back and forth on with them, you know, and, and, and especially since that can just turn around, be turned around and taken advantage of in its own way by Paul calling a very, you know, 
cheeky draw play. Yeah. And, and and suddenly you've hit someone in the mouth with a speeding running back at, you know, 25 miles an hour with no hands yeah. on them. So the defensive tendencies, I, I think they're, you know, this is, this is all theory at this point. This isn't, you know, yeah. but the, these players are coached from high school through college, through the pros, mm-hmm. years and years of experience Young, younger coaching. Than that. Younger yeah, than that. telling them to play the run first in those situations. When they see a run look in a certain situation, like an early down, they play the because run. Because they can recover. I'll just take that another, I'll take that another step further. I, I think that the reason it is that way is because you have time when it's a passing play. Even if it's even if it's a short, even if it's a quick passing play, there's there's still a certain amount of setup. Mm-hmm. Get back on that back foot, fire the ball out. In a run play, it's if you lose that step, if you don't get to your gap in in in, in, in as a defense as a defender in your in your in your in your fit, it's over. Right. The guard the guard or the tackle gets the leverage on you, the hole's created, the running back's through and pass to the second mm-hmm. level. So I think you can get right, you know, or or you your teammate can help you get right in, in a in a pass coverage situation, in a drop by, you know, through pass rush, through a, another play. I, I think that that's a lot more a lot easier to correct, especially for second level defenders. Uh, but I think, you know, if you miss the, the your key on a on a run run fit, you're going to get a bad angle and it's over. So that is, and so the, the, um, I think it's, you know, now that we've kind of talked it out a little bit, that is such a fascinating market efficiency yeah. for for offensive coordinators because I mean you're now playing, you're now fighting the defender's tendencies. Yeah, you know, you're making the defender's tendencies work against him, worse than just a play action situation because I mean because it is play action, but it's beyond that. It's like. I think teams are abandoning play action because they assume that it's going to stop working. But truth is play action doesn't really stop working. Yeah. And there's separate, you know, like Ben Baldwin did some work for football outsiders that suggested that the more you use play action, it it doesn't really decline in effectiveness. Play action is effectively, there was an article in Grantland a few years back um, that was basically arguing that the play action passes the corner three of the NFL. It's the most efficient, mm-hmm. highest payoff uh, play. Your completion percentage, even on downfield passes where you would normally have low completion percentage, is much higher. Your uh, EPA and, and everything, just everything. Play action passes are beautiful. They're wonderful. The Cowboys should play action pass way more than they should do. Um, but anyway, I'm getting off track. Um, the there, There's a little more interesting evidence here, too, that I didn't bring up. So um, Josh Hermsmeyer of 538 did an article. Yes, Frisco Josh. Yeah, yeah, Frisco Josh on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, He did uh, an article on 538 in the middle of this past season using NFL tracking data and basically found that no matter how often teams were, uh, you know, using the play action pass in an individual game, whether they did it six times, seven, eight, even 11, 12 times in a single game, the linebackers bit every bit as hard on that 11th time that yeah, they used the play action yeah. as they did because, in like the third time. Take, take all the information that you know about, I mean, think about, let's just talk about Jason Garrett, right? Mm-hmm. Think about how they coach these guys. Forget about last play. 
forget about what's what happened to play before. Like you're not, you're not. It, it, I think people think of it more linear. Like you know, oh, he's thinking, he's thinking about that play before. Maybe the cornerbacks are. Maybe the cornerbacks are thinking about like the you know their relation to what's happening with the wide receiver. But the rest of these guys are not. They're living and dying play to play. So like they're not like learning from their mistake mm-hmm. unless a coach is telling them to do that. So I, I think there is something there because I think that that's, if you just, I think that there's an element of, of the analytic part that I think that is helpful. And that's actually trying to figure out the psychology of why a player is doing that, you know, and why, why you're seeing this, what is it? Statistical anomaly, this, this whole, this, this inefficiency or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. And I think that the fine trying to decipher, you know, you don't want to play psychologist all the time, but you're trying to figure out why you're able to exploit that, right? So that you can kind of design ways to, con- you know, exploit it in different ways or or to find a shape of it, right? And I think that, um, you know, one of the things that's really fascinating to me there is that because players are so myopic to the play at hand, they're so in the moment. That I think that lends to what we've been talking about. That like that is just going to continue to work because it's so instinctual. Mm-hmm. They've repped it so many times. They they saw the guard's foot go left, so they're going that direction. Mm-hmm. You know, they that whatever their key, their key is. And I think that you know that we talked. About, I think that the the Cowboys when they played the Rams, they they talked about that that how the Rams were able to kind of manipulate the Cowboys' run keys at times. Mm-hmm. And and I think that the, this is kind of right along those is like you're using your the players' instincts against them, and I think that this what this is proving is that that's that. I mean, they're not t- they're not learning, you know, whether it's the big, it's the first quarter or the fourth quarter, and they've had a game filled with play action. They're still taking that step before they drop in, into pass coverage, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's basically what Josh came up with at, at this yeah. point. No, I mean it's. I think there's just a ton of evidence to support that idea and just add, add to that just how coaches talk about the game and their priorities. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. There was a, you, you might remember uh, a couple weeks back, I think uh, Snacks had a tweet and uh, he was touching on this. He was like, y'all are so critical. People on Twitter are so critical of, you know, uh, how, you, how you play the pass or the run as a defense. But he's like, look at look at the opposing offenses. The opposing offenses are running the ball more often in these situations than they do in the others. So we're focusing on stopping the run. It's logical. And he's right. Until offenses yeah, change is. their offensive like philosophy on the early downs and change how they're you've calling got, plays. You've got to make them stop it. Yeah. Right. Like you've got to make them you gotta make them stop leaning so he- heavily on that. And then the market efficiency. Yeah. So I have no idea what early downs and early down play calling and outcomes is going to look like a decade from now. Yeah. I don't know how defenses are going to adjust or even how much they can adjust. Because I do think that there is a, an inherent sense in which the forward pass is more advantageous than a handoff behind the line of scrimmage. Um, but I think it's highly situational too. And it's highly dependent yeah. on how the defense is playing. Um, so I have no idea what that's going to look like in 10 years. I'm pretty sure it's going to look a lot different than it does now, though. I think there are going to be teams, and we're, we're, we might even start to see it, perhaps with Kingsbury or perhaps when more of these teams that are hiring 
you know, people from the analytics community, like the Ravens recently, um, the, the Panthers. Um, once yeah. we see more of these people actually entering the, uh, the NFL um, teams uh, and the decision-making process, I think we're going to see some change on this front where the early adopters are really successful or at least are gaining a, a measurable edge and others are going to look to emulate it and the game is going to change just like we've seen some other sports um, where the same thing is unfolded at a different pace. Before we move on to uh, the next topic, what are some good runs? Like what, what are, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm being unkind when I say <laughs> that, but I mean, I, cause I like running the football yeah. a lot, but uh, what, but what, like from an EPA standpoint, like when is the efficiency higher? Then, then, or or when are we? When are we the royal we not running the football enough, or how are we not running the football? Enough? See, I love this question because there are you wouldn't know it probably from Twitter, but there are situations in which the nerds, the nerds, would point the fingers at the football guys and the coaches and say you the aren't nerds? running the ball enough, and they would be wow. right. I think so. Here's some of those situations: third down in general. Um, it's very difficult to pass on third down. It's very difficult to pass for the amount that you need, the specific amount of yards that you need on first down. I think conceptually, we all know that. So rushing is often a better alternative to that. Um, especially third and short, fourth and short, um, those situations running the ball, especially if you're like spreading out the defense, there's not a lot of men in the box. You're much more likely to succeed in those situations. Um, and that's a great opportunity, I think, for teams to lean less on the pass and more on the traditional handoff or perhaps a run pass option type uh, approach or even getting the quarterback involved. Um, then there's within 10 yards of the goal line. So if you're right about to score within 10 yards of the goal line, the runs are much more effective than if you were at the same down and distance, but further back. Um, uh, and I think part of this is, you know, the uh, is kind of uh, unique situations with regard to uh, how difficult it can be to pass in that part of the field. Um, yeah. But uh, so the, the running game becomes more valuable there and is probably, if anything, underutilized at the goal line. And then there's the, um, the unicorn here is quarterback rushes. So mm. I, I've, the more I've looked at this and the more I've looked at running plays uh, from the, the, the literal running back um, and the quarterback, I don't even think of them as the same type of play anymore. Like QB rushes are not like running back rushes at all. Um, they're much more productive on a per play basis. They're much more likely to end in a first down um, to go for more yardage um, or to produce a situation from which you're more likely to convert. Um, they have higher touchdown rates. Um, if, you, if you were to look at the things that really matter, beyond yardage, like first downs and touchdowns, and you compare Dak and his average rush to Zeke's average rush, Dak's playing from a tremendous advantage in that the defense can't fully account for him as a runner and also stop mm -hmm. the run, uh, the, the traditional handoff that is, and also can account for the pass. They can't account for right. it all. And he's not a better runner than Zeke, but his rushes are so much more productive. Um, and it's a big part of where he gets his value from, in my view. Um, not the majority of why, 
He's a good passer, but he he has this rushing threat that the Cowboys are able to utilize to great effect. Um, the design concepts, the scrambles, all of it's good. QB rushes are really, really good. They're actually on par with passing plays um, in terms of their expected um, payoff. So it's it's fascinating real quick. It's fascinating to me that Dak has this trait that makes him like I think special, mm-hmm. right? And to me specifically his ability to run the football effectively. It's not that he's, you know, faster than other running backs. I mean, he's he is fast, but he's he's not like a blazer. I think he's just explosive. Mm-hmm. Like he he act for, you know what I'm saying, for he could really get up and go quickly and I think it changes the angles quickly. But beyond that, it seems that for all the reasons you talked about, because from an X's and O standpoint, the, the reason you even do quarterback run is because obviously you get a numbers advantage immediately mm-hmm. because of, of just the the way it works. How many people are there in the box, you know, the the quarterback usually not being accounted for in most run fits. <laughs> so I, I think I agree. Like it's, it's interesting because the overall argument of, does Dak need Zeke to be effective or valuable? I would say no, because I think what Dak does as a passer is what makes him quote unquote valuable. Mm -hmm. But I do think that Zeke does contribute to Dak's effectiveness as a quarterback designed quarterback runner, because there's deception involved. In the same way, maybe, maybe even to the same percentage points, uh, that play action that that running affects the pass. You understand what I'm saying? So, like, I think there may be something. I, I don't have any numbers there, but I, I do wonder if that is the way in which Zeke really does affect Dak's value. Is is Dak has extreme value as a running option, especially in the you know the red mm-hmm. zone near the goal line. Um, and I think Zeke does have an effect there. Yeah, it's it's a tough thing to to you know to answer um and to know and have any degree of confidence in. Like yeah, for so sure. here's what I'm pretty confident of. The presence of the running back as a rushing threat enhances the quarterback's um uh, value on a potential yeah. rush. That is absolutely i mean conceptually sound i think um it draws attention because at the very least you think if this is a run the running back is the person who's the threat right and so i think that's definitely the case so in that sense i do think zeke plays a big role in Dak's ability to run on those plays the the question is how much does zeke's reputation as a premier elite back right like how much does his reputation um, and his performance on previous plays um, affect how the defense is playing Dak on those rushes, um, and that's just tough. And man, you know, that's just tough to know. That's that's the toughest part of all of this is that the psychology. And we this is what we were just talking about. Figuring out the psychology part is. Uh, I mean, I think I don't know if this is actually part part of analysis that eventually is going to come in. But I think that that is like the final leg of total analysis of what's happening on the football yeah. field, right? Like, because you, 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 without intent, you know, without knowing what is in a person's mind, you don't really know why they're doing what they're doing. And, and without knowing why, 
I mean, that's what coaching yeah. is, is understanding the why of why a player does and then manipulating, exploiting. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that's it's analytics helps find new avenues, new tools to, to, to do what you want to do. They don't always explain the why uh, all the time. And that, that, that sometimes takes, you know, a coach because you have to know what is in the, the programming for the player or, or, you know, it, it takes a player themselves to be like, so why did you do what you did? And, and, and maybe we can kind of reverse engineer all the all the different aspects of it but i i do love the conversation around the you know play sequencing and run past splits because i do think there is a lot of market inefficiency there in the nfl because of you know traditionalism whatever you want to call it um you ready to move on to the next uh, subsection or you want to go anything else no, there? yeah let's move on okay so uh, this one's called uh, offense versus opposing defense which unit appears to be determining the better shape of uh, better sorry the better share of results on the field and how should we interpret team defensive stats in light of the influence of opposing offenses you know and uh, a lot of this too is about just the stability of being a great defense i guess is the best way to put it maybe mm-hmm. you know and, and and whether that is something that can be constantly replicated so where where would you like to start in this general topic? Sure. I you know, I I think in general the the first thing I'd bring up is that stability question you mentioned. So when Landon says stability, he's referring to, you know, the the how replicable is defensive success over time. If you're a really good defense in the first 7 or 8 weeks of the season, how likely are you to get really good defensive results in the second half of that same season or from one season to the next. And what, what people have found is essentially that the offensive results are much more stable over time uh, than the defensive results. Um, and there's still a ton of variance there. Like offenses go up and down all the time. We saw it with the, uh, the Rams this past year where they were just otherworldly dominant in the first half of the season and still good in the second half, but there was just a big drop off, right? Um, There's similar stuff that happens every single season with a bunch of teams, but the offensive side of the ball is getting more consistent results by EPA per play, by success rate, pretty much whatever you want to look at. The offense is more consistent than the defense. Um, And there's different theories of how to explain this. And I think the strongest one. which once again, this is hypothesis. This is theory. Um, I've got one too, so I'm interested to see how close it is. Okay, to mine. we we might come down on different yeah. sides here. The, the one that I think okay. is more convincing or most convincing to me is simply that the results of what happens on in an individual play on the field are determined more by what the offense is doing and how they're dictating um, and choosing where to go with the ball uh, than than the defense is influencing those same plays. And I think over, it's not so much that that's happening every play, but just that over time, really good quarterbacks find ways to exploit defenses. Uh, defenses often have weak links. Defenses also, um, you know, they're less reliant on like a single player, like a quarterback, for instance, you're going to have injuries. Yeah. You're going to have churn and, and turnover in that staff. Uh, you know, just your linebackers aren't going to be the same linebackers over the course of the season. Yeah. There's just a lot of things you can point to, but I think overall um the most 
the, the explanation with the most like power for me is just that the offense has more to say about what's going on on the field than the opposing defense does. And the defense matters uh, very clearly has a, a big role to play in the outcome of the game. The defensive results matter probably every bit as much in an individual game as the offensive results do. I, I mean, I think that's actually the problem if you're, if you're going to ask. So, mm-hmm. I mean, here's, here's my theory. And it's, it's actually not far from what you're saying. I think the reason that offense is more stable is because, first of all, I think offense is more scheme-based than defense is. I think defense is more reaction-based. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they set rules for defenders, but ultimately they want defenders to react. So those results that are happening on a defensive side are based on the, the rules set down by the defen- defensive coaches and I think the defensive results is a lot based on the players that are on the field. So, but that's also a very volatile situation, Mm -hmm. right? Because you need 11 good players to play good football, I think. But I think in order to play good offensive football, all you need is a healthy quarterback and a system that's working. You could probably shut. I mean, I think individual wide receivers and, and players like that work, but I think offenses can still function and create because of the way they're built and because they're so quarterback reliant and quarterback is a position that ultimately I think relative to other positions is so healthy uh, that it, it causes a level of stability that defenses don't mm-hmm. have. They shuttle in, like you said, they don't have just a running back. They've got three running yeah. backs as, as linebackers. They don't, you know, these defensive linemen, they, they get shuttled in and out as well. They, they pick up injuries, uh, maybe even more than offensive players because they're such Everyone on the on the field defensively is such tightly wound players. They're such incredible athletes that there's wear and tear there, and there's so much shuttling in and out. There's so much more substitution that there's increased amounts of variance there, of course. So I think ultimately it's interesting because it, that would explain the wide variance mm-hmm. there, I mean, year to year. But it also would explain why having good defensive players matters because without them, you just are playing bad football even when you're healthy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because it, it kind of goes both ways, right? Like, you can yeah. have a defense that isn't, doesn't have that great of personnel, you know, and or, you know, has bad results in the first half of the season, and they can right the ship. And by all appearances, yeah. the way we traditionally look at defensive stats and defensive results, you know, we, we usually say, the defense really struggled in the first part of the year, and then they just locked it down, and they started producing turnovers, and they started doing this and that, and, and they helped their team win. And from a purely descriptive standpoint, it's true that the defensive results improve and that, the, you know, that, that it helped the team win games. The question is, how much of that was actually a reflection of opposing offenses, almost leaving an imprint in the defensive stats? Yeah. You know? and. It's impossible to really say, but um, it you know it's it's partly why I'm kind of I'm kind of skeptical of these sort of like with and without stats, you know, where like like yeah. I remember PFF well, had this this tweet in the middle of the season. It wasn't even a big tweet, it, you know, it wasn't a big deal, but it just stuck with me. Um, there was like a defender I don't even remember their name for the Rams. It was a cornerback, I think, really good player who missed most of the season. Um, and when in the games that he missed, 
the defense was just off a cliff. And then they were really good in yeah. the games that he was he was part of. And so the conclusion that most people would draw is that this player is essential. This one player yeah. on defense is essential. But if you just went back and looked at the games that this player missed and at, the quarterbacks at the schedule, they, yeah. played, they played like all the best quarterbacks on their, on their schedule. Yeah, that, so that's and, one illustration, I think, of how the opposing offenses leave their mark on the defensive stats. And yet the way I certainly used to think about defensive stats, and I think a lot of people traditionally think about them, we tend to give like almost 100% credit to the defense for those outcomes. Yes, but in reality, yes. it's a more complex mixed picture, and a lot of it's luck. A lot of it's like turnovers that you were just gifted. And some of it, I think, a big portion of it is the opposing offense as opposed to the quality of the defensive play. And your own offense. Yeah. That's the other thing. Look, listen, I think, again, and let's let's go into the, the final subsection about proper analytics application, but, but I do want to say that I think Again, one thing one thing where I feel like EPA and a lot of contextualized analytics really struggle to explain is that complementary football is a thing. You know, like it, I think it's hard for us to quantify it, but I think the idea that time is an element in winning and that uh, having the ability to find a way to control that time and whether and and not just like being able to control the time but being able to control the psychology of the other team's playmaker using time and using uh, a lack of opportunity i guess is the best way to mm-hmm. say it as a motivating factor i think these are things that it's not that it's hard to account i think the problem is is that it needs to be accounted for for some teams more than others and when we look at it from a wide scale, this is an element that I think is completely ignored at times. If, if you know, yeah. So, you're, so when you're talking about sort of complementary football, uh, you're, you're referring mostly, it sounds like in this context at least, to um, a team that controls the ball, controls the clock, uh, moves the chains, and perhaps uh, keeps you know its defense off the field. Is is that kind of the idea? It's. I think the thing is, is that I feel like, in the same way that, like, how do you measure the proper EPA of a quarterback taking a winning deal at the end of the game, <laughs> where it's like, you know what I'm saying, like, it, because it's 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 winning the game, but at the same time, you know, take a one yard gain on on first and ten is not is not optimal, right? right? So I think I think there's a point where taking a two yard run up the middle in order to run 35 seconds off the clock with you know two two minutes left in the fourth quarter when the other team has one timeout like that has value that I think is difficult to measure oh. you know what I'm saying and and I, that's not like a small thing those are those are a significant number of plays that happen in a, in a given NFL season even in a yeah game. I mean you're so, looking for a win probability win probability added which is a sister stat yeah. to expected points added um, where they do at the very least uh, incorporate the sort of the game state uh, where you are in the game. And if it's kind of late in the fourth quarter and it, it includes, you know, it, it includes the time on the clock. So, you know, if you were able to burn additional time um, from like a, a rushing play that, you know, that that's going to factor into win probability added. And that, that is, I think something, that I haven't looked a ton at 
win probability late in games, but others have. And what they've kind of found is that, yeah, you can have a run that's like kind of negative EPA, um, but it's advancing your your chances of winning in a late game situation with a particular score. Um, but yeah, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating question in general, um, and not one that I've looked at in a ton of detail myself. So I can yeah. mostly just but I, speculate. I, I think it's you know I think it's something just like the, uh, that's in the context that the when measuring some of this mm-hmm. stuff because I think it's something that gets waved away by people that aren't aren't thoughtful about using this stuff like like the people that are presenting it. That's again, this is more the problem is that I, I think the people that present these tools are are thoughtful because they understand the tools. Right. And so the, 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 how they are applied, they understand how not to fool yeah. themselves with using these tools because they understand what this is. They understand it for what it is. I think sometimes people take the tools, understand them on a very surface level. And, and I myself have been victim of this before. Oh, we my, all have. To myself. Yeah, we all you know? have. And, sure. and, 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 oh, then that's the other thing is, yeah, I totally, I think what, even in the analytics community, the people that invent the tools at times fall victim to their own tools. And I think the story you illustrated earlier is a good idea of what, what you were talking about, about Zeke's carries. It's like, if you're not careful against your own biases, mm-hmm. you know, you can make these stats, you can make any of these stats. It's the classic, you know, uh, every time, uh, d- DeMarco Murray goes over 100 yards in Dallas Cowboys yeah. football, football game. Yeah. You know, it's like that can that can mean whatever you want it to. So, um, yeah, I just think that's where we are with this. I think that's it's it. We just have to be very careful, and that again brings us to our larger talk at the end of application of of how to use these uh, uh, these stats and these numbers and. Um, I, like I said before, and, and you just tell me whether you agree, my general hypothesis is that using these tools to kind of more specific situations and, and, and like that I kind of have clear lines of, of connection uh, is a much more efficient way to kind of get the most out of them as opposed to some of the more generalized large scale. I mean, I think, I think some of the larger scale stuff works, but I, I just think you know, the NFL has so many different schemes and, and, and diverse groups that I think sometimes some of these things are better measured in smaller individualized groups, maybe intra-team if, if, if possible. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on kind of general best practices on, on kind of using these tools for some of our users who, who see them on, on, uh, on Twitter and, and, and kind of, you know, are, are unsure of how to apply. Them. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. I think where I come down on it myself is that you're better off actually starting from the the idea of trying to find what the league dynamics are, right? So you want the largest sample. You want uh, dynamics that are applying, if not to every team universally, then at least you know, every team is almost participating in a, in a measurable relationship between a couple of variables. You want to start, I think, from the general principles um, to get an idea of what you want to do in a specific situation. And the reason I say that is because the reverse uh, approach, um, where you're starting from like an individual team and their tendencies and their outcomes, you're starting with a much smaller sample. Um, it's, it, you're not even sure whether that's going to be useful information 
or that same team the following season or the next game because of how small the sample is at times. Um, and, you know, like I, I, I would, I just think this is a really good question because it's like raising so many like sub questions in my mind. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think I've also made myself not clear because I used intra team as, as, a, as an example of a small group, but, th- but you're right. Like that is a bad example. I think I meant more, um, and I, I don't necessarily have problems with t- league-wide measurements. I, I think it's more just that I that I, they need to be. Uh, here's where I have, I have problems with things like the PFF grades yeah. because I feel like it's it's a combination, and I understand it's a combination of a whole bunch of small things, but I think that it gets lost in translation at times when it's too many things kind of being hodgepodge together in a product that eventually also includes a decimal point, which to <laughs> me when presented seems like a, it's supposed to be an accurate product, right? It's, it has a decimal point. in it. So um, I, I just think I, I'm, what I more mean is, is that I think it's useful in finding out specific, maybe finding out a specific thing in, that is a league wide trend or, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like, as opposed to kind of, trying to make it like the it's like the old douglas adams right like trying to make it the the solution the answer to all the things in the universe <laughs> of all ever you know it's like the 42 is not just a comprehensive answer you know like i i guess my point is is that it's good for finding specific things what i don't think it's great for is st- we still haven't found a way to kind of hodgepodge it all together into an algorithm to solve you know yeah. football. yeah i guess is more what i i i'm getting no, that's definitely the that's definitely true and I think the the key to to learning uh, about the game using these tools is to understand their limitations. Um, they're yeah. they're not yeah, like like we said at the very beginning at the very outset. EPA, for instance, is a fantastic tool for analyzing uh, large numbers of plays and the results of those plays and the value that is being added using different techniques in different situations. But it tells you nothing about intent, and it tells you nothing about any yeah. number of other things. And, you know, we do have to interpret the information if we're trying to learn from it and make some hypotheses and guesses and maybe try to test those. And sometimes we're going to interpret the data in a way that's wrong, Um, just a bad theory. And it'll be in good faith, you know, but we'll be wrong. Um, That's going to happen. And uh, it's going to happen with any kind of analysis um, to some extent. But I think the more we try to recognize the limits of, the tool and also the limits of our ability to use it to draw a conclusion, the better conclusions we can draw from it. Um, going back to kind of the original like question here, I think like here's just an example of how I would approach um, like applying this for uh, like the Cowboys. I would let, let's look at like second and ten play calling for the Cowboys. There was a period in midseason where I think the average Cowboys rush on second and 10 was more uh, valuable than the average pass in that same situation. Hmm. Um, So the question is, what do you do with this information? Do you suddenly say, man, we need to be running the ball more often on second and 10 because it's working and because the pass isn't working? Um, Or do you back up and you say, well, let's check and see, like, let's see, is this work? Is this the same for other NFL teams? Because we know we have a yeah. small sample of second and 10 plays. There's just not a lot of them. 
you've got a lot of second and nines, second and eights, but second and ten is very specific. Um, yeah. And even if you have a few dozen or even like close to a hundred plays or something, you're still talking about something that just may not be repeatable and you may be giving yourself bad information. So the first thing I would do is look at the lead um, and just look at situationally how those dynamics play out. And what you see is that second and 10 rushes are generally not very good plays um, compared to passes. Um, and so I would just have that information in the back of my head. And I would also be bringing in the information that the Cowboys had that success in a small sample. Exactly. And you try to yeah, reconcile see, those things and figure out what to do going forward. It. I love hearing that because that's, I think that's, and that's something that little nuance is, is exactly the way it should be. This is a tool, you know, this is providing again, and uh, all back to my, the brand I love so much context. You know, this is all providing context to the, the play caller, the decision maker. Hey, generally speak, it's, it's just like the fourth, the fourth down bot, you mm -hmm. know, it's like having the fourth down bot. is just like, Hey, this is, this is what the, the numbers say. That, that doesn't mean that's the right. decision. You know, you, you're the coach in the, the, the moment you understand your team. And I think that's one of the things that you know, a guy like Jason Garrett has a lot of faults. You know, a, 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 you could say a lot of different things about him that not great in-game coachings at times that he's had problems. But I think the one thing that you can say about him is that he understands his team and he knows his team very mm -hmm. well. And so uh, I think, you know, that is, is, that's an important thing to know in the moment is, what the numbers are, what the numbers tell you, and also what specifically where your team is on that scale and what, what how you feel about where they are in that specific moment, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's important in, the, in, in these decision-making is that none of this is the end-all be-all answer. It's a tool. It's, it's a new tool that gives us better context, a different way of looking at things, but it's still, you know, a tool, a, a, an aspect of, of decision-making. Yeah. And maybe, you know, like, here, here's what I'm hopeful for with regard to analytics and its use in the NFL. I'm hopeful that at some point in the mid to near future, we see coaches start to really kind of try to wrap their heads around this different way of analyzing the game and their own tendencies. And when they're in yeah. that situation where they're like, I know my team, it's second and 10. I know my running back, I know my line, and I, I know what I can trust them to do, what concept I, I can expect them to pull off. I know we've been struggling to pass in this particular way. I, what I hope is that yeah. in that moment where they have all of these like almost gut instincts that are based on a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge, I would hope that they can incorporate into that exactly. an idea of yes. like the broader dynamics that are very difficult to grasp with gut instinct or even experience because there's just so many plays and our brains are not able to crunch all the implications of all of these plays that have happened in the NFL, hundreds of thousands of plays um, that have lessons for us in them. If we look at them in a comprehensive way and in a sound uh, data analysis approach. Um, so essentially what I really, what I want for my team, like the Cowboys, I want them to like put themselves in a position to win. Um, which I think they already have been for a while now, clearly. But um, what I would like to see is a more robust investment in analytics um, and a coaching staff and front office that would be willing to incorporate it 
basically from the top down to just basically solve certain problems, to do the things that analytics do well while allowing the coaches and the personnel people to do what they do well. Um, and right now, I think what you see across the league is, you know, guys who made entire careers without ever really confronting what data analysis could bring to um, an understanding of this game. Um, so that's kind of my hope is, is that there will be an incorporation and there will be like a realization that my gut instinct and even my knowledgeable experience doesn't always produce the right answer in the long run. And we can show that um, by showing a large number of plays that, that bear that out. Daniel, thank you so much for, for joining us. I mean, this was so fantastic. We got through so much information. Uh, give give everyone your uh, Twitter handle one more time before oh, we head out. Oh, it's at Cowboys Stats. And are you still doing stuff for WFAA next season? Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, I, I don't write as much as I would like to just because, you know, I've, uh, like you, I've got a full-time job and what I do yeah. is, is writing. And so it's like, uh, when, when I, when I'm struck with inspiration and I have the time to crunch new numbers in, in a comprehensive way, I, I put it up on WFAA. So yeah, people can definitely look for my work there and I'll share that on Twitter, uh, when I'm able to write. But definitely follow him on Twitter as well, guys. And, and yeah, look out for his stuff uh, on WFAA as well. Uh, guys, make sure you follow me at McCoolBCB. Follow John at John Owning and follow our uh, mutual account at Best Coast Boys with a Z at the end. Special thanks to Mike Fisher and follow him at Fish Sports. And catch us all on Cowboys 247. That's 247sports.com forward slash NFL forward slash Dallas dash Cowboys. And you can always catch us on the Anchor app. And don't forget to rate and review us. Uh, and leave us five stars otherwise john will come to your home i've seen i've seen pictures guys it's ugly um so (laughs) until next time happy trails everybody